hello and welcome to the first Dumfries and Galloway podcast, or in this case, the Dumfries and Galloway Petecast. And we're talking all things peat today. Um, I'm Laura Moody. I'm the lead candidate for the South of Scotland region for the Holyrood elections in 2021. And I've got two guests with me today, uh, Liz and Janet. Janet, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Janet Moxley. Um, I'm a soil scientist um, with a particular interest in peats uh, and high carbon soils. So um, hoping to be able to contribute a little bit about why peat matters. Great, and Liz? Hi, yes, I'm Liz Ashburn. Um, I'm a gardener. It's what I am. It's what I do. Um, so the discussion about the amount of peat that's used in gardening and horticulture generally is is a real issue for me so that's why i came along the reason we're having this podcast is because Dumfries and galloway greens and now we've joined forces with la south lanarkshire greens um are campaigning to stop peat extraction uh, in the south of scotland um the south of scotland has extensive peat coverage and there are currently in Dumfries and galloway two uh, potential sites looking at extending their licenses they're nutbury moss and lockwood moss uh, lockwood moss is near Beetuk and nutbury moss is uh, near eastricks near annan and in south lanarkshire janet what's the site there that's in for it's hill house farm which is hill house farm at Sandylands, which is near lanark which has um just in the last few weeks put in an application for a time extension um, they currently got permission to extract peat till 2024, and the time extraction, the, the extension would take them to 2034, which is four years after the target date for the abolition of use of horticultural peat anywhere in the UK. Um, so it's hard to see what their market for this is, unless they're planning to carry on extracting and using peat um, in horticulture beyond the, the you know, government target dates. Okay, so. Let's rewind slightly from uh, uh, the, the planning applications that are in and we're objecting to. Uh, Nutbury Moss application isn't actually in at the moment, but they've just heard that they don't need to do an environmental impact assessment, which has certainly raised a few eyebrows. So Janet, can you start us off by explaining what peat is and, and why it's important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, peat, peat is soil that has a particularly high carbon content um, and is also very deep. So um, it's a very important store of carbon. Um, in Scotland, peat stores about just over 20 years of anthropogenic, that means human-produced greenhouse gas emissions from Scotland. So 20 years worth of power stations, cars, um, people's boilers, heating buildings, that much carbon is stored in peat. Um, peat is produced very slowly. It's, I suppose, not quite a fossil fuel in as much as it hasn't been stored. The carbon hasn't been stored for as long as uh, carbon in, in coal or oil, but it's been stored for thousands or tens of thousands of years, locked up in the peat, which, as I say, can be very deep, up to 20 centimetres deep. And peat bogs, if they're left alone intact, continue to grow, continue to store more and more carbon. Um, and can reach depths of up to 20 metres deep in, in some places. Um, a minimum definition for a soil to count as a peat is, is to be a metre deep and more than 20% uh, carbon. So they, they lock up a lot of carbon. They are um, mainly composed of a, a moss called sphagnum, um, which absorbs a lot of water. Once it absorbs the water, um, 
and, and, and it dies, it forms a layer that the air can't get at, um, so that, that the um, microbial processes that break down things like, like leaves or, or material in your garden um, don't happen because the air can't get in, and so all this carbon is preserved, and then another layer of, peat, of moss grows on top, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, um, and the, the peatland actually sort of grows into a hummock um, called a raised bog, um, and um, that's how, in the south of Scotland at least, most of the, the, the peat and the peat extraction sites are on raised bogs. Further north we have um, bogs that continue up hillsides that, that are known as blanket bogs, but most of the bogs are used for peat extraction in the south of Scotland are raised bogs. So they've built up over a long period and store a lot of carbon. Excellent. And um, Liz, um, I'm guessing the moisture retention capabilities of the sphagnum moss and the, and the peat are what makes it particularly appealing in horticulture, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think the water retention and the other thing is the, the texture of it. Um, when you extract peat, it can be milled down to a very fine texture, which is really suitable for sowing seeds um, and the, the kind of smaller seed germination. So the horticultural trade is has historically used peat for a long, long time. And I think are finding it very difficult to stop using peat. Um, it's been a very convenient medium. It holds lots of water but at the same time the texture of it enables the right amount of air to get to plant roots as well. So grower, commercial growers are really very fond of their peat um, and are finding it quite hard to, to find substitutes. Um, however, there is huge efforts uh, by the RHS, by DEFRA uh, and various other research bodies to find alternative mediums that will do the same job um, and so it's quite hopeful that these will become more used over time. Um, however for retail horticulture, for home gardeners, um, there are various peat-free formulations available um, which are unfortunately always more expensive than the peat version which is the big rub. Um, obviously, retailers are conscious of this price difference and, and it, it does make it slightly less attractive at the point of sale um, because it is always that bit more expensive. I know that the, the two sites in Dumfries and Galloway are both mm. uh, extracting for horticultural purposes. Yeah. Is that the same for the site in South Lanarkshire? It's different. Yes, I think I believe so. I mean, most of the peat that's extracted is for for horticulture. Some of it is for um, um, fuel, and particularly part well, partly for um, small scale um, domestic peat use, which tends to be more in the north of Scotland, um, and also for malting barley for the whisky industry, which um, is, is is a different application. But um, it. Yeah, so it's, it's not it's not actually specified what the end use of the peat is either in planning applications or or in in uh, um, things like like the um, British Geological Society have a, a record of of all mineral extraction sites, including peat sites. But to find out what the specific end use from a specific site is 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 a bit harder. But um, yeah, it's believed to be horticultural. I mean, that that's the the, the biggest market. The the whisky industry have their own own sites that tend to belong to or go be close to distilleries um, 
and obviously domestic peat cuttings are close to where people live and a much smaller smaller scale so um i mean obviously you mentioned whiskey there obviously in in scotland in ireland um peat extraction has gone on for a very long time so what's different about this cut scale of peat extraction and and why do we need to stop this happening well i think the the, the, the industry like to give an image of peat extraction being um a, a rustic with it with a spade going out and digging into their little bank of peat behind their their cottage and um and and uh you know working their way through a peat bank um actually over time around some settlements in the north of scotland there are large areas of very degraded peat even from this small scale extraction um but it's it's not this domestic small scale spade dug um peat that we're talking about here this is this is large sites um hill house uh, farm covers 100 hectares uh, so 100 acres um um the lochwood covers 50 acres the, these are, are big sites um the peat stripped off the top of the surface in a, in a sort in a um um a milling process uh, and it's stripped off a layer at a time so sort of 30 centimeters and then back the next year takes off the next layer down um and so it takes off all the peat the surface of the peat's left exposed during the lifetime of the um extraction which means the peat starts to dry out um, it can be blown by the wind the air gets into it starts to oxidize over these large areas um, and um, yeah it's, it's an industrial scale um, I have to say the Republic of Ireland has even huger sites and they gobble it up and put it into power stations which fortunately we don't do but um, you know it, it, it is a big site it's a big industrial process um, and you know large machinery involved yeah, it's it, it's it's big scale. It, it's it's not a cottage industry by any means. I'm assuming the moisture retention element for horticulturalists is also valuable in terms of land management as well. Does peat play a part in flood control? It, it depends a bit where it is and how it is, um, and to some extent which hydrologists you talk to, uh, because obviously peat is a lot of the time is already very wet and therefore it can have limited capacity to take more water um, but you know it, it 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 can have a role to play in, in flood control i i, I think the, the hydrologists although, although it has been played up as a benefit of peat it, it depends on some of the hydrological modeling what does happen is when peat gets degraded it cracks and lets more water in and that can actually speed the flow of, of water through a catchment as the peat degrades, the water flows through through faster through what, what's called pipes in the peat, um, which are sort of channels that, that, that it can get through. Um, but you know, when you've got an intact peat bog that's very wet and you then get heavy rainfall, it's already wet. Um, so intact bogs maybe don't retain, they have a limited capacity to retain water, uh, water from storm events because they're already wet most of the time. But degraded bogs can increase runoff, yeah. So not so, a straight so. No, no, exactly. Well, none of this is. I mean, it's actually yeah. really quite a complicated area. Um, and obviously, we've talked about uh, peat being a carbon, a carbon store, a carbon sink. Mm -hmm. So when the peat is harvested, what happens to the carbon? Well, um, as it gets taken, it gets taken away. Obviously, it gets put into a bag, taken to the garden centre, um, or yeah, um, it then um gets 
um, left in, in, a, in a fairly dry condition as plants grow, grow in it. And that allows bacteria that haven't been able to get into it, the oxidizing bacteria, um, to um, use the, 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 the peat, if you like, as a, as a, as a food source. And, um, you know, we, we take in food, we breathe out carbon dioxide and water. So the peat becomes converted to carbon dioxide um, and goes out, out into the atmosphere. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it ends up, um, the, the, the carbon in the peat ends up in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Okay, so not great from an emissions point of view. We've talked a little bit, or Liz talked a little bit about alternatives to, to peat. Um, and certainly I think, um, you know, as well as wanting people to object to these planning applications and make their voice heard, um, there's also lots of practical things that we can do as consumers mm -hmm. and as gardeners um, to to use alternatives to peat. So this, would you mind going through some of the sort of common alternatives that you can use? What if you get a bag of compost that's peat free, what is likely to be in that bag? Yeah, um, several things likely to be in the bag. Um, primarily, probably um, recycled composted green waste. The green waste that the council collects, hopefully separately, um, <laughs> goes to a composting facility. And, and strangely enough, um, right next to um, Nutbury Moss, practically just on the other side of Carlisle, there is a huge composting facility, um, I think run by Cumbria Waste Management, where they've got enormous windrows where all the, the green, the garden green waste gets chewed up, gets um, shredded, put in a, a long pile uh, and is composted to the most unbelievable temperatures. You can see steam coming off it when they move it about. Um, so composted green waste goes in. Uh, some uh, composts will have coir in it, which is a byproduct of coconut plantations, which in itself has problems um, of social justice. The conditions in, in coconut plantations are not great and coconut trees take a huge amount of water. So that's one thing that has to be factored in. Um, various other things, composted wool and composted bracken are sometimes used in uh, uh, compost and also wood waste, processed wood waste. It's slightly acidic when you compost down bracken, but if yeah. you've already got slightly acidic soil, it doesn't really That's make fine. much difference. And it mm. does make a fantastic mulch and a fantastic compost. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think one of, one of the things with, with peat alternatives is that they can be very variable quality um, mm. and what can put gardeners off. So, you know, um, in terms of nutrients, in terms of um, um, what, um, how how much woody material you get in there? You know, you, I've had somewhere you've bought bought a bag and it's full of sticks, um, which isn't really mm. ideal for putting seedlings in. Um, you know, I've had coir compost, which I think has really been sold with a mind to be sold to people running hydroponic systems, where all of the nutrients uh, are coming from from a, from from um, dissolved in a water supply, um, and you know, I know peat is, is low nutrient, but there are some nutrients in there. But, you know, the, 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 some of the coir composts have had, have had absolutely no nutrients in them. Um, and there's no there's no labelling or quality control to say, you know, what the, as you say, what the source of the material is. Is, is, is it um, composted waste? Has it been high temperature composted, low temperature composted? Um, 
um, you know, is, is it coy or is it wool? Is it, you, you, it's harder to tell what you're getting. And I think that's one of the things that, that gardeners find difficult with it is, is not knowing what, what you're going to be getting. But uh, I mean, I would actually say one, one thing I found, um, at least in, in, in Bigger, where I stay with, um, with COVID is that our, our small hardware shop that used that well still does sell all sorts of compost used to have pretty much no peat free compost uh, because people have been going there instead of the garden centres and um, they, they've had rather more requests maybe than normal for peat free compost and, and they have started uh, to sell, sell now this year sell a range of peat free compost to meet demand having previously looked at you like you were rather peculiar if you wanted peat free so um, that, that was possibly a good thing. We will be talking a bit about the legislation re regarding mm. and the plan to phase it out and it would have been good when that was brought in if if the government had perhaps looked at standardising or quality control for the peat free alternatives yeah. so that people did have that reassurance because I think yeah, a lot of people will give it a go, but if they have one bad experience or buy a bad yeah. hat, um, and I think I certainly know some of the sort of fairly a few years ago, the sort of cheap, cheap sort of big DIY shop owned brand peat free composts, certainly yeah. I felt were very hit and miss. Um, yeah, but it definitely seems to have improved. But I, I think generally, as time goes on, peat free composts are, are improving by and large. Mm -hmm. I think the real horror stories were perhaps three or four years ago and I think these days it's far less likely that you'll get a really rubbish bag of, mm -hmm. of free compost. I, I think the bigger companies like Westland, um, I found a big supplier, uh, Melcourt, who made their name with bark mulches for horticulture. Um, mm -hmm. they, they are producing them in volume um, and they're becoming much more mainstream. And I think the consistency and, and the quality is generally on the up. Uh, mm. And I think the fact that the RHS uh, and DEFRA are promoting them to a great extent these days, and, and even Gardener's World, I mean, Monty Don. That certainly is uh, something that, that he's very keen on, on raising awareness about. And mm. I think generally in gardening, there's so much more interest in wildlife friendly gardening um, and environmentally conscious gardening. I think to, to kind of harness that swing of opinion um, with the peat free compost, I think if it will be good to see some concerted effort of, of education of consumers that link the fact that we are churning up vast acreages of Scottish countryside in order to feed their compost habit. Um, if we could connect the two, the two ends, um, I think that would help to sway consumer preferences towards peat free. Yeah, I think it's also as well as getting gardeners to ask what's in the bag when they're buying compost, it's when they're buying plants, uh, because a lot of the peat is used by commercial growers um, to ask what is that plant potted in when you go into Dobie's or whatever garden centre asking what is that plant potted in and looking at, at some of the, the large consumers of plants, um, particularly maybe public sector councils, you know, you go to Prince's Street Garden and there are bedding plants being put in here, there and everywhere, not this year, but, but in a normal summer. And I bet, but you can bet your bottom dollar that most of those will be potted in peat, um, mm. I, I would think. Um, I think, yeah. I think so, so. So there's considerable clout with some of the public sector procurement to move to peat-free. Um, I think. 
Um, I think some councils have have recognised the fact that it it would be important to uh, reduce or even stop completely their use of peat, and I think their parks and mm -hmm. and open spaces departments are slowly coming round. Uh, I can't think of any just at the moment, but there are parks departments who have mm -hmm. undertaken that in their, their procurement procedures. It would be good to yeah. see, with, um, you know, so many councils now making climate emergency declarations and turning those into action plans, that to me that would seem a really obvious thing to do, to go peat-free in the garden section. And ideally, if they're composting their own green waste as they are in, in Cumbria, um, using that and, and closing yeah. that or keeping that circular economy and keeping everything within. Um, you're mentioning that waste site uh, in Cumbria um, actually also sort of got me thinking about the transition elements of this. So at Nutbury Moss, um, I'm not sure, so sure about Lockwood Moss, but I know about 20 people are employed there. Now, if this extraction license isn't extended, something is going to have to happen to those jobs. And it strikes me that as they've already got a site, as you say, there's green waste being composted down the road, um, more, perhaps one of the most practical things that the council could be doing would be to be encouraging the owners of these sites to be looking to switch to using the same premises and the same people to produce peat-free compost. And possibly training up some of the people that have been working on peatlands to work in peatland restoration as well, because you know, there is demand for people to go out and um, do the work in blocking drains, um, planting planting sphagnum plugs, and 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 um, and helping to improve the condition of, of peatlands. Not not just um, ex extraction sites, but but other areas of degraded peatland. Um, you know, primarily areas which have been um, drained um, for either sheep grazing or, or grouse moor. Um, so that there's opportunities there and then potentially when you get a, a better environment it becomes more attractive for tourism so you know and, and recreation so there's potentially job opportunities there as well. So that's a really good point so we're sort of talking about well what happens after if we stop the peat extraction what happens next and I know the Scottish government are quite keen on re-wetting I think they're calling it rather than mm -hmm. rewilding um, and, and presumably trying to sort of extend habitats mm -hmm. that might be peat at some point in the future yeah how can is it possible to restore peat bogs or once they're gone they're gone and and what kind of actions are needed to be taken to restore that landscape or to extend peat bogs mm -hmm. where they disappeared long ago yeah well well we, we know in areas where where there's been drains put into peat um drainage ditches that they can quite successfully be restored just by blocking the drains so that can either be Drop, uh, originally when they the early projects in the Pennines where they were trying to, to block the drains they were putting in bits of plastic sheet corrugated plastic sheeting to block the drains um, which was putting plastic into the peat but it, it was stopping the water flowing out of the peat bog um, subsequently they found it works just as well if you if you actually make a little dam out of out of bits of, of, of the peat at the side and block the drain that way and and, and the um, the peat that then re-wets and starts to build up. Obviously, it takes a long time for it to fully restore, but I mean, it's probably been re-wetting peatlands for 20, 25 years now. Um, and definitely starting to see the effects of this improvement. Now, with peat extraction sites, obviously they're more severely degraded than, than areas that have been where the peat has 
been there, but it's dry. They're more difficult um, to to deal with. Most of the operators have um, restoration plans, which they put in as part of their planning consent. Um, I'm not too aware of any in Scotland that have actually been restored because they keep on or or, or rewetted because they keep on extending their planning consent. Um, yeah to avoid having to implement the, uh, the restoration plans. It's, it's rather interesting, actually, that the Scottish planning guidance um, says that peat, peat extraction can continue or can be allowed on sites which can't be restored. Now, all of the sites we're talking about at the moment have got restoration plans as part of their previous planning application. So they've said that these sites can be restored. So, so they're, they're obviously not degraded so far that they can't be restored because they've told the planners that they can be restored. Um, so they're, they're um, possibly hoisted a bit by their own petard on that one um, because they, they can't then claim that they're degraded beyond restoration. So, but it, it will be difficult to, to restore peat extraction sites. Um, I think normally the planners have a, lim a limit, a meter of peat has to be left um, to allow it to, to re-wet to start the, the process. Um, recently, there's been quite a lot of interest in, in using sphagnum plugs to, to accelerate um, the recolonization of the peat. And there are, there are um, uh, nurseries producing sphagnum now for the purposes of re restoring peatlands. So that will help rather than just waiting for the for the moss to kind of encroach inwards. Um, I guess the although not in Scotland, the other area of really degraded peatland is the East Anglian Fens. Um, and they are in a terrible state. Now they're highly productive agricultural land. Um, that the, there's a interesting, well, interesting for a peat geek post called the Holm Fen Post uh, in the Fens, which um, somebody back in the 1850s had the foresight to stick to stick basically a lamppost into the Fen until it hit bedrock. Um, that that lamppost is now three and a half metres, what was the top top level with the top of the peat is now three and a half metres in the air because that much peat has, and that's not extraction, that's just, it has dried, it has, as it has dried, it's like squidging a sponge, it sinks down um and it's let the air in so some of it is oxidized some of it's collapsed under its own weight and the peat has lost about three and a half meters in depth um so that you know that whether we can afford uh, and that's very intensively drained that's pump drainage they have electric pumps that pump out the fence and the somerset levels which we hear a lot about flooding in the somerset levels a few years back um, but part of that is because the land has subsided because of the amount of drainage that's going on. And so you end up with a vicious circle that the land surface is getting lower and lower. So, yes, of course, it floods. Whether anyone has got the bottle to switch off those pumps, which would flood quite a large area of prime agricultural land. But, you know, I have heard policymakers talking about that um, because, well, partly because because um, because the, the government ultimately pays for running these pumps. Um, but they, that affects a large area of multiple farms. So it's hard for conservation organisations to say, well, we've got this little bit of nature reserve and we'd like the pumps switched off when they're surrounded by other people that are also relying on the same pumps for their crops. Um, so that's a whole other kettle of fish, which doesn't really apply in Scotland, but is actually a major source of peatland emissions in the UK. Um, and nobody's really attempted that, that at scale. Um, um, in, in, in sort of the south of England. 
Um, some of the very large peat extraction sites in, in Somerset, they claim to have restored. And then when you go and look at the sites on Google, or they've re-wetted, restored, they've created these wonderful habitats. Uh, when you look at it on Google Earth, you get a series of square ponds. So basically what they've done there is taken all the peat down. Um, they've, re they've, they've filled it with water, let, let the water come back into it. That's never going to have it be a habitat for sphagnum. Um, they've built a few little islands for nesting ducks to increase biodiversity um, and said, well, it's re-wetted, it's, it's, um, uh, it's got some biodiversity because there were some ducks there, but that's not the um, ecosystem that was there to start with. Um, and and that, those are over thousands of acres, parts of Somerset, they've got, the, it, it's, 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 it's very localised in part of the Somerset levels, but there's, there's uh, huge areas of so-called restored peat extraction sites that are, are ponds and similarly in Republic of Ireland as well they, they tend to restore to ponds which isn't really what we're looking for. It's very hard isn't it I mean it, those are really difficult conversations and difficult decisions for the governments to have and it's frustrating when you see you know legislation that has got through about stopping and phasing out peat extraction and deadlines that have been set and legislation mm -hmm. passed at both Holyrood and Westminster about this and yet the dots don't seem to be being joined up at all. And the, the, there's, there's targets with no policies to drive those targets particularly with regard to, to the horticultural peat sales. Um, DEFRA have the view that peat is a legal product and there's nothing that we can do to either ban its sale or extraction. Well you know, there are lots of things that were legal products once that aren't legal products anymore. So, um, you know, somebody at some point has to say enough is enough. And we are going, you know, if it's not going to happen voluntarily, and it's certainly not happening very fast voluntarily, that there are sort of waves, I think, you know, that a few about five, eight years ago, there was a bit of a, um, a trend probably round about when Monty Don first started kicking off about it on Gardner's World and Gardner's Centre started starting started stocking peat free. Then for the last couple of years, I've been finding it quite difficult to go get peat free in garden centres and I've had to go to two or three garden centres and then there's only one type of peat free. Um, you know, whether we're again now become, getting to another um, crest of people getting interested in peat free, not sure you know it's nice to think think that, that, that we are but maybe that's just the people I'm talking to and are they typical of all gardeners um Liz what's you know, your experience is this something you're noticing in your in your work are you having more customers speaking to you about Pete or asking about Pete um not particularly I don't think uh if if I initiate the conversation then then yes maybe but it doesn't seem to be a very big subject amongst most gardeners, um, whether that's through ignorance or the fact that they're they're just genuinely not concerned about it. I I don't. I suspect that a lot of it is ignorance because mm -hmm. they don't know that you know vast acres are being ripped up in order to provide them with potting compost. Um, and I'm sure if they were aware of that, things might be a bit different from their point of view. Okay, so um, we're going to have another uh, podcast uh, 
hopefully fairly soon after this one, uh, where I'm going to talk to Paul Kirkland of Butterfly Conversa Conservation, <laughs> Butterfly Conservation, um, about biodiversity on, in peatlands, and we'll talk then about some of the more sort of exciting measures that communities are taking and and everybody can take to improve biodiversity, improve peat. Um, I suppose from our point of view, at the moment, we're really asking people to take action to stop peat extraction. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about that, they can go to greens.scot slash stop hyphen peat hyphen extraction um, or look on the Dumfries and Gallery Greens or the South Lanarkshire Greens Facebook pages for more information. Um, there's basically two or three asks on there. There's the little uh, sign up sheet so you can find out about the campaign. There's uh, details about the two live planning applications so you can submit <clears throat> your views on those. And there's information about uh, positive initiatives uh, like the Langham Initiative in Estelle where the community are hoping to buy back some of their yeah. more and, and return and restore some of the people in there. Um, so we'll talk about more about that uh, next time round. But for now, thank you very much, Janet. And thank you very much, Liz. Thank you. That's good. Thank you.